Rabbi Emily, thank you for joining us today. And we wanted to have this conversation and dive a little deeper in terms of this holiday that we celebrate called Hanukkah. And my first question is, do we spell it with a CH or an H or does it even matter? Where did that come from anyway? Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be back in this space where we last celebrated our High Holy Days. And um, I'm really grateful to the Fourth U community for having me. And I'm grateful to see a few West members here visiting from West End Synagogue, as well as Arnie, who is now our first official West End and Fourth U member. So we get to share our communities even more. Um, to answer your question, all of the above, because all English spelling of Hebrew words is based on transliteration. Um, the word Hanukkah can be spelled with an H or with a CH or with a J, um, among other things. And so feel free to put in as many C's, as many H's, as many K's, as many N's, and as many U's as you would like, and we'll probably know what you're getting at. And can you tell us a little bit more about some of the symbols, perhaps? So during Spotify, as people were coming into the sanctuary earlier today, there was the sound that many of you are familiar with, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. How has the dreidel become a symbol for this holiday? So there's a lot of mythology wrapped up in the dreidel. A story that I was told, whether it is factually true or not, is up for debate, is that there was a time when lighting candles was not permitted and when talking about Hanukkah was not permitted. And this was in Europe. And so the children had these little tops, these little spinning tops that had on them these four Hebrew letters that were an acronym for a great miracle happened there, Neskadol Hayasham. Um, in Israel, it's Neskadol Hayapo, so the dreidels actually have different letters. And so to the outsider, they would just see small children playing with tops, but the idea was that within those homes, within those Jewish communities, the children were learning the story of Hanukkah by playing. And there's even a story that although gambling is prohibited in a lot of Jewish community, you're permitted to gamble when you play dreidels. So people will play with gelts, um, these chocolate coins, with pennies, with peanuts, kind of whatever you want. Usually the stakes are pretty low. Thank you for pointing that out. And you talked a little bit about miracles happening. Has that always been the story around Hanukkah or did that come a little later? That's one of the most interesting parts of the Hanukkah story. So the Hanukkah story is really a few stories. The first one comes from the books of Maccabees one and two. So they're not, they're not part of the Hebrew Bible, but they're part of the Apocrypha. So these extra writings that were not canonized, but are still a part of the Jewish liturgical writing tradition over time. And in that original story, we mark a military victory. So in 167 BCE, King Antiochus, who was a Hellenized Syrian, outlawed most forms of Jewish practice. So the Jews in that land could not keep Shabbat. They could not, um, they, they couldn't have circumcision for their sons. And instead they were supposed to worship the Greek pantheon and engage in really this Hellenizing that was being brought to the entire region. So this group of rebels, particularly zealous Jews fought and won um, and were able to rededicate the temple. That's where we get the name Hanukkah, it means dedication. But at the time, there was no miracle. 
this was truly a celebration of a military victory um, by a guerrilla warfaring group. Then, several hundred years later, Hanukkah reemerged into the Jewish canon, and that was in the Gemara, which is um, the second big piece of Talmud. So we're talking like roughly like fifth, sixth century um, CE at this point. And then we had this addition that when the Maccabees got into the temple, they found this tiny little vial of oil, of holy oil, that would be enough for one day because you had to have this oil to purify things. And lo and behold, as many of you I'm sure know the story, it lasted for eight nights. And so the original Hanukkah story had nothing to do with a miracle, but I find it actually miraculous that we added it because that's something that really informs a lot of our celebration of the holiday today, that we have that eight day miracle. That's where the menorah comes from. Well, the menorah comes from the Torah, but the, the Hanukkah, this is fun trivia, this is not called a menorah. A menorah is a lamp and it typically has seven candles, but a Hanukkah has nine, one for each night, plus the shamash, the helper candle to light. And that idea of the Hanukkah is connected directly to the miracle of the oil lasting all eight nights. And when you talk about current traditions, have any of that been a form of assimilation, meaning <clears throat> here in the United States, for example, there's a lot of traditions around this holiday season. And we could probably go on about how Unitarians had some role in the Christmas tree being the way it is, for example, or even several hymns that were written by, Christmas hymns that were written by Unitarians as a way of shifting the emphasis away from the drunken debauchery that was taking place around this time of year, right? This was um, the Puritan forebearers on the Unitarian side, not the Universalist side. So how has the Jewish community adopted, adapted the, the, this, this holiday season to incorporate Hanukkah into the season? Because really the season is a celebration, sorry for talking on and on, this is like a, a rambling question here, but um, this holiday season really is more than just about Christmas or Hanukkah or Advent, and it's also winter solstice, and we celebrated Diwali about a month ago, and, um, uh, you know, uh, Bodhi Day was last Friday, according to the Japanese Buddhist tradition anyway. So there's a lot of celebrations around light this time of year. So we could talk about that, or we could talk about how gift giving has been incorporated or lighting the Hanukkah has been incorporated into this tradition around this time of year. Can you say more about that? So many directions to go Indeed. with this. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so much syncretism when it comes to religious traditions. Obviously we have unique attributes, we have unique traditions, but there's a lot that we share as well. Even, you know, that that really beautiful rendition of Maud Sor that I think, Rob, did you write that? Is that, did, did you write that version? Amazing, so beautiful. So I was saying to Rob before the service, Maud Sor is this Hanukkah tune that's very important. A lot of people will sing it every night after lighting the menorah. And it's, uh, I believe, 13th century lyrics, 13th century words about this military victory. But the tune, 
that is sung in many Jewish communities actually comes from 15th or 16th century German Protestant churches. So we have this, what now I think would be recognized as a very Jewish tune that has absolutely Christian roots, but is using Jewish words. And we can use this as an example of just the way that we borrow from one another's traditions regularly. So when we're talking about gift giving specifically, gift giving was not a major part of Hanukkah. And in fact, Hanukkah is considered within the Jewish tradition to be relatively minor. When, when West End Synagogue comes to the fourth use space for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those are holidays of much more significance to our tradition than Hanukkah. Hanukkah is considered like a lovely holiday, but not nearly as important in the scope of the liturgical year. But in the United States, Christmas is huge. It's a federal holiday. It is something that dominates and has come to dominate even more of the consumer culture beginning. I, I think I saw things in a Michaels or something. I want to say in like early October, like pre-Halloween, I started seeing Christmas decorations. So, you know, which I, I anyway, <laughs> we don't have to go there. But just to say that for I think that for the Jewish community, taking on gift giving as a part of Hanukkah is a way of being part of this American culture that does focus so much on consumer capitalism, particularly around the holidays. And when it comes to holidays of light, I suppose I have much fonder feelings about that attribute and the fact that it is shared among, among so many traditions. It's literally dark out there, not, not at this moment, but you know the days are, are as short as they're going to be. And although um, the reading that was shared earlier by Rabbi Strassfeld reminded us that Hanukkah does not typically overlap with the solstice. It does sometimes, sometimes not. It depends on when the 25th of Kislev happens to fall. It is always in this season from roughly Thanksgiving to early January. So it's always in this time when the days are short. And I think it's a very human impulse to want to create more light in a time when things are dark out there. And so I think for that reason, it makes sense and feels very human and really sacred that we get to share our holiday of light around the same time that so many other traditions are sharing theirs. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And getting back to the tradition, there's also been a tradition from what I understand anyway of uh, Jewish folks going to eat at Chinese restaurants because who else is open on December 25th, right? So that has a particular resonance um, for me being Chinese. And um, I'm, I'm glad that there's that symbiotic relationship going on there. Although I do not suggest ordering Chinese food on Christmas in New York City unless you want to wait for about four hours at the restaurant going, where is the food that we ordered at five o'clock and now it's 9 p.m. Don't recommend it. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, I, I like how you talked about darkness and light. And again, I recognize that, you know, sometimes words have been used to um, uh, propagate, shall we say, white supremacy culture, and they've been co-opted, right, to mean that darkness is bad and lightness or whiteness is good. And so, and, and again, I realized that that's when we talk about pigmentation, but when we, when we talk about the spectrum of light, that's another story altogether. Can we find any value to darkness? And is it possible to sit with darkness for a while before rushing to the light part? 
What theological message can we draw from that? I think we can draw a lot of messages from that. I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that every year when I'm lighting Hanukkah candles, we begin with just one, the first night there's two candles. There's the Shamash, the leader candle, and then the first light on the, on the Hanukkah. And before I light, I always, with my partner, turn off the lights of our home. Because if you start lighting the Hanukkah in a room that has a regular overhead light turned on, you won't even see it. It will be such a minimal amount of fire, such a minimal amount of light that it won't really impact the room, the environment, the space. But if you turn the lights off first, if you create darkness first, then in a way you're almost reenacting the Jewish creation story of kindling light, of creating light out of this void not that darkness is a void but you're you're enhancing both darkness and light by letting them both be present in the space and so we do that every night we turn off the lights of our home we light the candles um we do have a little string of what i call winter lights which look like those lights on the christmas tree um that we hang in our in our apartment as well so we leave those on but we turn off all the overhead lights and then over the course of hanukkah we just see that brightness filling the space and it honors i think truly both light and dark. Yeah, that's great. And again, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about, in some ways, there's a danger when we only tell one story. And um, again, I, uh, you know, I bet many of you have seen the TED Talk by Chamamanda um, Ngozi um, Adichie on the danger of a single story. So. How important is it for us to recognize that even with the articles that we read in the newspaper, for example, right, recently about um, these college professors, for example, being um, interrogated by our government around what they're doing to make sure that um, anti-Semitism is, is being addressed in our um, institutions of higher education. So, and I get that it's so difficult to draw out the nuances in a society that only goes with sound bites and with really quick, non-nuanced responses. So how do we, and we're getting to the heavy duty stuff here, right? Uh, how do we talk about that as people of faith? It's a huge question, and this is a dark time. Um, you know, one thing that I've been observing is that this war, this war in Israel and Gaza, as well as this horrific upsurge in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, it's being waged in a time where we are seeing more visuals than we ever have before. And most of what we're seeing, especially for younger Americans, is coming through on screens about this big on social media. And so we are getting sound bites, we're getting slogans, we're getting bits of the narrative that are truly just that, bits of the narrative that cannot tell the whole story. And I would say within the Jewish community, that's particularly complicated in that, in my experience, there's a lot of assumptions that people make about what Jews believe about the current moment. So I could be completely Zionist or completely anti-Zionist, but if I'm read as a Jew, 
people are going to have strong opinions about what I believe and penalize me for those opinions. I, I had a piece actually that I wrote about Hanukkah in Teen Vogue earlier this week and they put it on their Instagram and I went to the post and half the comments were things like happy Hanukkah, you know, just normal kind of, isn't this nice? Cause what I'd written was fairly fluffy. It was for teen, it was for teens. It was, you know, about just creating light and um, connecting to tradition. But half the comments were very angry comments about the war. And this isn't about standing with Palestinians or not standing with Palestinians. What the, the civilian casualty toll in Gaza is absolutely unfathomable and immoral. And the piece I'd written was not about that. And the fact that what these folks saw on social media was a rabbi writing about Hanukkah and what they took from that was that they should be screaming about how Israelis are murdering children. There's, there's a, a few leaps that are happening along the way. And so I'm trying to even now try to figure out how to engage in this conversation with the nuance that it deserves. But what I would say on the whole is just, we have to keep asking more questions and we have to walk into conversations with as few assumptions as possible. Because if you were to ask every person sitting, even in this room, what they believe about Israel, what they believe about the Palestinian movement, what they believe about Jews, what they believe about Muslims, you would get so many different answers and those answers would be based on individual narrative. And so narrative is where it starts and narrative is the only place where we can go to get through it. I've been saying over and over to my own community at West End that at this moment, the community matters immensely with all of the narratives that make it up. Within my community, I have people who have dear family and friends living in Israel, myself included, Arnie included. Um, and I also have people who are in that same boat, who have dear ones living in Israel, and who also feel passionately about the Palestinian cause and who actually speak against Israel on regular occasions. And they're all part of the community. They are all part of this sacred community of West End. And that's true if you look at the Jewish world on the whole, all the more so that we have a range of views, a range of voices, many of them coming from the same desire for peace, for justice, but leading to different modalities of action and different views about the circumstance on the ground and those views and those actions come to narrative. And, you know, we can even look at the Hanukkah story and see that while we simplify it to say that the Jews were fighting the Greeks really the Jews were fighting a mix of Hellenized Syrians, Greeks, and Hellenized Jews. And even the Maccabees who won that battle and, and rededicated the temple, their dynasty came to be one that ended up persecuting some of the very people that they had been trying to protect once upon a time. And so the story is just rarely as simple as it is often made out to be. And particularly when we're talking about religion, where we tend to begin with sanitized versions of stories and the kid-friendly versions of stories, many of us don't grow up beyond that or are not educated beyond that. And so we end up staying in a place without nuance. And my, my prayer for this season, my prayer for this time is that we can continue to ask ourselves, where did this come from? Where did this come from? And continue to dig in. I love that. And um, we were talking before about how we need to complexify instead of just simplify. And I also love what Parker Palmer said. He says, 
let's get curious, not furious. Because oftentimes the default response when we encounter something that we're not familiar with or that may trigger us at some point, we go into that angry phase right away, right? Well, and we may go there. That may be, that's, that can be a natural response. Somebody can say something and you can feel your blood boil. The question is not, can you avoid that? You probably can't avoid that initial response. The question is, what do you do when you feel that response and when you're looking at a human being across from you? How can you turn to that place of curiosity from there and ask difficult questions that might bring us deeper into community? Yeah, and I think that's the key word right there is to humanize the other instead of just reducing them to you know, words like vermin, which has been used by someone very prominent recently, right, to describe a group of people. So when we are able to um, shift away from that kind of dehumanizing language and be in relationship with each other, I think that's when we're able to have these difficult conversations and trust that at the end of the day, even if we disagree with one another, that we will still hold each other in love and recognize the divine spark in one another. A hundred percent. And that, that's part of why I'm so eager to continue to deepen the relationship between Fourth U and West End Synagogue is because I think that interfaith connections, particularly in this time, are crucial. Um, a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of Islamophobia comes from ignorance, from people not having direct encounters with folks who come from different traditions than they do. And that can manifest in all kinds of ways. I grew up in the South and I didn't have that much Jewish community and I, I encountered unintentional anti-Semitism along the way. And having grown up with a Jewish parent and a Quaker parent, I have in the Jewish world encountered prejudice when people say things like, nobody who grows up with a Christmas tree can understand that they're Jewish. And I respond, well, well, I grew up with a Christmas tree and I'm a rabbi. So, you know, if we if we actually encounter people that challenge our stereotypes of what works and what doesn't work, that's where we can start to grow. So I, I really do wanna thank you for not just doing a Hanukkah service without including Jewish community, but doing a Hanukkah service that involves Jewish community. And I really hope and pray that this community will continue to feel tied to ours. We're excited to host you in the new year um, for a Shabbat. And please feel free and welcome to be part of our community as much as you would like. And I hope the West End community will continue to be part of this community. Thank you. I too hope the dialogue continues. And I just want to end with these words by um, Unitarian minister and um, one, one of the, uh, the, the writer for a beloved Christmas hymn. It came upon a midnight clear that we will indeed have peace on the earth and goodwill to all. Thank you. Maybe Thank so. You. I mean. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive a little bit deeper into our service themes. Today, I'm joined by two guests for a special Hanukkah-themed Getting the Message and a special Hanukkah-themed service. I'm joined by Reverend John Furr, our interim minister, and Rabbi Ellie Cohen. It's great to have you. Thank you. So I am curious. Hanukkah is about kind of like a story. Right? You know, it's a, it's a, a narrative that um, is told to understand a historical thing. And a lot of religious stories really kind of stem from similar things. They're, they're attempts to try and understand the world around us. Do you think that this is like an important role that 
religion plays and like the storytelling that we tell ourselves? Absolutely. Um, I think that when we use religion to tell story, it does a few things. It helps to bring story from the ancient into the modern. It helps to make the stories actually evolve over time. Like the Hanukkah story began as one thing and became something else over the course of hundreds of years. And that what it became actually something that reflects the evolution of the Jewish people. And I think that that's true for a lot of stories, that they're based in narrative that may or may not have been historical. But that they become narrative and in becoming myth, they take on a lot of different meanings as well. And how does that tie in to the theology? Does that evolve over the years as well? I think so. I mean, it depends on which holidays you're talking about, but I do think that theology within Judaism is something that has shifted and continues to shift. And even today, we have so many different ideas around theology. There are theists, there are atheists, and then ideas of God and politics theists also range considerably. I imagine that's true in the Jewish Jewish tradition as well, that like there are theists and atheists, there's a range. Absolutely. There's the joke of at most one God, or we pray to whom it may concern. <laughs> and yes, it's uh, absolutely over evolved over the years and through the consolidation of two different faith traditions, it's brought an even richer conversation and dialogue and however you know it's, it's hard to pinpoint just one story for you know ten universals or even a more cohesive one since we draw from many different faith traditions and people with different beliefs over the years and so I think we lend ourselves to a diversity and pluralism of both stories and theologies that makes sense. Though I will say, you say at most, oh God, some of us are UU polytheists. Um, <laughs> so we might have to revise that statement. <laughs> I don't think that took into consideration neo-paganism, right? At that point, but rather just the name Unitarian implies that it's the opposite, or not the opposite, but as opposed to Trinitarianism, which is the founding of that particular strand of our faith. When I think, you know, you were talking about how we draw from many traditions, but, you know, I think we see it with the current ch changes and discussions around our principles mm -hmm. that people have kind of began begun to, like, tell a narrative and a story around those as being core to their understanding of UU. So they're having you know, a harder time with this process of perhaps changing them. Right. But <clears throat> even our principles have changed and evolved over the years you know like you were mentioning you know, paganism that our seventh principle which is very beloved talking about the interdependent web of life didn't even come about until the 80s right and um and our eighth principle didn't even pass this congregation until what a year or a year and a half two has it been two years okay something like that so again even the principles are not um, set in stone so we don't have like these tablets that came down from mount sinai that told us that thou shalt do's and thou shalt not do's and um so we're left with um a covenant amongst ourselves to figure it out so that's right mm -hmm. Changing gears entirely. <laughs> so Hanukkah is about light. We also have like Diwali, winter solstice, kind of honoring that the, the light is coming. Um, Bodhi Day. 
the advent of candles. Yeah. So a lot of religions this time of year are all about light, which is, you know, understandable. We don't want to encourage the seasonal depression too much. <laughs> but do you think that there's a way that we can kind of celebrate and honor darkness at the same time that we, I think we often like fear darkness and in our technological age, we've kind of conquered darkness with electricity. You know, is there a way that we can celebrate and honor darkness? You know, I think about these qualities relating to light, and in a lot of ways, I feel like they wouldn't exist if not for a celebration of darkness, because when we light the menorah, for example, at least at my house, we turn off the lights first. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't want to kindle that first light of the menorah without having the darkness to contrast it. And so in a way, it's celebrating both. Um, there's this tradition that you're supposed to use the Hanukkah lights to publicize the miracle of this Hanukkah story. And you're not supposed to use them for things like just utilitarian things. So you're not supposed to read by the Hanukkah light. But I actually sometimes do read by the Hanukkah light because when that rule was created, candles were used and like oil lamps were used for utilitarian purposes. We didn't have electricity. And so to sit and read next to a menorah today is actually this simultaneous celebration of light and dark, mm. which I find really powerful. Yet again, in Unitarian Universalism, um, a few years ago, there was a tradition called Chalika, right, to highlight the seven principles um, at the time. And so, um, you know, I, I personally feel like there's also value in darkness. Those of you who are MS Revolutions fan will remember um, uh, a song called, um, uh, I'm backing out of the name of the song, but one of the verses talks about um, the value of darkness and being born in, um, or, or gestating anyway, in our mother's womb in the dark, and that there's a certain sense of comfort in that, and that I personally prefer to sleep in the dark um, with blackout curtains on. <laughs> and um, it helps me and my circadian rhythm to um, be enveloped in darkness. And I, again, I find that to be um, uh, a crucial part of the rhythm of my day, that we have moments when we work and we play and we, um, connect with the light, and there are moments when we embrace the darkness. So for me, it's both and, the yin and the yang, so to speak. Well, those were really beautiful answers. Thank you for, for sharing. It, uh, my experience, I grew up uh, very much the nightlight kid. I had to have a nightlight. I was very afraid of the dark. And over the last few years, I've really been intentional about um, having less screens in the morning, having not turning lights on right away in the morning, just like enjoying it being a little bit darker, a little bit slower, a little bit calmer. I found it to be a really rewarding practice to take that time in the darkness in the morning. Oh, I just remember the name of the song. It's called Better Days by MS Revolution. That's a, yeah, that's a great philosophy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of when I was younger, and I mentioned it when we were preparing for this, uh, when I grew up, I was a young Earth creationist. Uh, I was led to believe that the world was 6,000 years old, that evolution was a lie, um, and that, you know, it was all just stuff that was faked. Uh, and, um, my story changed over time. 
uh, thankfully. I'm, I'm very happy about that. But it was such a, uh, everything hinged on having very specific readings of very specific stories. And if you called into doubt any small parts of those, like it was, it was bad just to call into doubt even the smallest thing, because if you didn't believe word for word that what they were saying, it was very bad to not have the, it was bad to have flexibility in our stories. Um, I think that um, in the Jewish tradition, as well as in the UU tradition, that I think there's much more room and flexibility for like letting the stories, you know, as you were saying at the beginning, kind of evolve into these different meanings. Either of you want to like touch on like the importance of letting stories be able to evolve in the way that we understand ourselves as well. I, I have to just share this, that when I was a kid, our next door neighbors were Southern Baptist. And I remember my neighbor, who's a very good friend of my little sisters, had a, had a t-shirt that said the lie evolution with like a, a snake and an apple. And I remember being very confused. And then they tried to convert my sister who was like four in their basement and she was not converted, but she did come home like, you know, crying to my mom about how she was going to go to hell because of Jesus. So all of that to say, I think that it is important to let stories evolve if for no other reason, <laughs> because you don't want to accidentally confuse children into thinking that their friends are going to be eternally condemned for, for their beliefs. Um, you know, I, the thing about traditions changing and stories changing is that the more complicated they get, the more complicated it gets everybody and then we have to engage in nuance which is you know uh, definitely not as simple as saying this is right this is wrong but much of life is in that gray area and so i think if our religious traditions can teach us to live within that gray and to make space for that gray we're going to be better able to handle everything else in the world that is just by its nature typically not black and white absolutely and i um mentioned during the sermon earlier when we were having a conversation that there's a danger to thinking that there's only a single story out there. In fact, there's a TED talk by Chimamanda Ngozi um, Adichie on the danger of a single story, right? And I think that's why, you know, when I read the Hebrew Bible, for example, um, you pick up on the fact that even the creation story, there were two of them, not just one, right? That they came from two different sources, and the order is different in terms of was Adam created first, or um, were they both created together? Is it a more egalitarian kind of message that be, is being conveyed, or a more sexist and patriarchal? So um, it, it, it gives us the option to not just choose which story and which narrative we want to engaged with, but it also, I think, um, like you were saying, Rabbi Emily, gets us away from this black and white thinking and this either or kind of thinking. To have a both and perspective, I think, draws out, like you were saying, the nuances and also complexifies things. Because let's face it, the world is complex. You can't just reduce um, statements to sound bites and to yes or no answers, right? And so um, I love what you said that it's not black and white, but, and it's probably more than 50 shades of care. But I'm fine. Thank you so much, both of you, for taking time to talk with me today and for joining us today for the service. Thank you so much for having me. I always love it.